Despite what you might think, our guest heretic isn't related to a certain controversial presidential candidate, but that doesn't mean he's without controversy. Our guest heretic, Chris Trump, owns the largest farm in the world to use the Korean natural farming method. On today's episode, you'll find out what makes this unique farming method, which uses basic kitchen ingredients, superior to standard organic methods, and how you can get started at home, only on the Nutrition Heritage Podcast. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. If you're still confused about what to eat and not getting the results you thought you'd get by going organic, go to NutritionHeretic.com and download the shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague for free. The shit list details what health food companies want you to believe about the crap they peddle and why the real foods they're meant to replace are far better. Stop letting big health food dump all over you and download the shit list today. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Nutrition Heretic. This is Adrian, The Nutrition Heretic, and I'm so glad to have you here. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself at this point, why is she doing so many shows on farming and the environment when this is supposed to be a nutrition show? Well, yes, it's true that the name of the show is Nutrition Heretic, but there are many issues that come up for people who are seeking better nutrition. Uh, as we discussed a few weeks ago when I spoke with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures in Georgia, there a lot of people, when they start wanting to eat better, they want to go organic. But as we said, organic is not the be-all and end-all of farming and of, in particular, of optimal nutrition in our food, as well as uh, the way of healing the planet and improving on uh, agriculture the way that we have come to know it in the West in particular. So with uh, people like uh, Will Harris and Spencer Smith, we talked about regenerative farming. And uh, one of the examples that we discussed was Chernobyl, because if you're old enough, like I am, you remember there was a disaster in Chernobyl in the Soviet Union back in the 80s. And it was uh, basically Fukushima, just not in the ocean. As a result, people had to leave because all of these crazy cancers and things were showing up. But because the people left, the earth healed itself. And Chernobyl now has apparently has more wolves than it had even 
prior to the disaster. Uh, it has, uh, I think there were just a couple little old ladies who were left there. And so now it's, it seems to be thriving. The wildlife is all coming back from, you know, wild boar trees, uh, different small animals. Everybody's coming back, uh, as long as the humans stay away. So what I wanted to talk about was something I mentioned on both of those previous episodes is Korean natural farming. Now, I this is just something that I've recently gotten into, but I did not feel comfortable speaking about it, especially to myself. So I wanted to get an expert on the show. And I was so lucky, so lucky through my Facebook contacts and the Korean natural farming groups that I belong to, to uh, be approached by a gentleman by the name of Chris Trump. And he is the manager, his, his dad is officially the owner, correct, uh, mm-hmm. of Island Harvest Inc. in Kapa'au, Hawaii. And he manages 720 acres of trees on the world's largest Korean natural farm, farm, <laughs> farm or farm using Korean natural farming methods. So with that, I'd like to welcome Chris Trump to the show. Hey. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And I, I know that, that people are, are going to be wondering, are, is your name really Trump or did you change that? <laughs> As I said that, I was like, oh, yeah, people are going to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, our, I think uh, my dad went and tracked down if there's any relation. And ours is Bon Trump in uh, origin. So it's uh, ah, okay. so you're no not... relation to the uh, to the Donald. OK, so so you're, you're not a Trump. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, I wanted to talk to you about, obviously, about Korean farming. Can you give people, because most of our listeners have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Korean natural farming or just natural farming. What is it and how does it differ from the organic or biodynamic type models? You know, uh, it's a great question. The Korean natural farming is an elegant way to increase um, biology on your farm. It's not the only way. Um, what we all kind of recognize is nature works in some kind of, of symphony or network that's um, happening on its own. And so the ideas in natural farming and some of these other farming practices that focus on biology is that we're trying to line up or come alongside or do things in line with nature. And um, so natural farming differs in its methodology, but the philosophy, I think, of a lot of these are, are real similar in that we're trying to get back to how it all works, and because it does work. It works really well, kind of like you just pointed out with Chernobyl, um, without much input. So natural farming is um, a method, and, and kind of the center part of it is that we use indigenous biology. And what that means is biology that you collect or um, use some of these processes to collect that's from your area where you farm and uh, live. And the reason we do that is because that's the biology that for however many thousands of years has lived, thrived, and dwelt in that area. So it likes your barometric pressure, it likes your rainfall and your temperature. So you don't have to worry about once you collect it and spread it back out in your uh, farm, whether or not that's going to be there or perpetuate. 
if you collect indigenous biology and and put it out and, and care for it, the biology thrives in that environment. It always has. The thing that comes to mind for me is uh, something that we spoke to the other guests that uh, spoke about regenerative agriculture is uh, just how one animal chases another animal, chases another animal, chases another animal. And essentially what they're doing is they're moving that biology on their hooves, feet, whatever, mm -hmm. across these lands. So they're, they're actually, so what we're doing is not necessarily manipulating, we're mimicking right. what, what would otherwise be, uh, moving just naturally in the landscape. Correct. And the thing is, is, that might not even have been necessary before we started farming there or before that turned into whatever it was before, you know, we got there, you know, so say something was where I live, um, all our orchard was in sugarcane before. Mm. And before that, you know, it was probably in um, Lois or Hawaiian Kalo. I mean, actually, one of the areas we farm was King Kamehameha's favorite lo'i and came right through our orchard. And uh, you can still walk in his, the diversion canal for the water that they created. It's actually being restored um, right now. But the problem is when you come in there with something like cane and the practices they used, um, you burn and till and uh, use some, they use some pretty gnarly chemicals. And so though that was an area with lots of biology teeming with life and in the soil, the practice of man, you know, caused a bit of a biological desert. So though animals move through there, we've created an unnatural environment where we've kind of trashed, you know, the fungal networks were damaged, the um, kind of diversity of biology, what made it through maybe the cane might not be as diverse as what was there before. So then we go a little higher, go up the mountain to an area where there was never cane, take collections. In natural farming, we uh, take collections on a dry-cooked rice with a tiny bit of uh, ingredient or nutrients onto the rice in a cedar box, which inhibits other biology or just kind of is a good uh, place to collect. And uh, we put it in nature bring in some visible mycelium and put stuff around it. And we take a collection from an area that um, has been as long, as far as we know, um, never molested by man other than cattle. I mean, which isn't great, but so you have this and um, a scientist was actually up on our hill uh, a while ago and he found some of the most diverse biology um, that he's ever found up in this area that never went into cane and it's just been oh, wow. grassland as far as anybody knows. There's ohia trees up there and it's, it's beautiful. But the idea is that huge amount of diversity, I, we collect it, get it to go dormant and then use that to seed our, um, what we grow it out on to reapply to our orchard. And what we're doing is we're seeking to replace what was there before. Um, we're, we're seeking to, reestablish the diversity that uh, gives us disease prevention and, and really kind of keeps a lot of the things we deal with in kind of a somewhat sterile environment, keeps it at bay. Right. So could you uh, put that, like everything that you said, <laughs> maybe not everything, but the process that you talk about, when you talk about biology, mycelium, uh, the dry cooked rice, could you walk people through a little more layman's terms? 
as to what that means, because I know what that means, but I'm pretty sure that if I had never attended a class before, I would be like, what the heck is this guy talking about? (laughs) So, (laughs) So undercooked rice. Real quick through the process, we cooked rice. What happens after about five days of that being in the field is it it blooms up like cotton candy um, with and those are that's just biology beneficial fun fungi, which is fungus plural microscopic mushrooms bloom and look real pretty like a like a white grayish cotton candy mm-hmm. and um, we take that down and massage it with equal weights brown sugar and what that does is it causes all this biology to go dormant because mm-hmm. the just like salt fish on a long sea voyage. You know, um, you stick your fish in salt and they stay good and dry and no no rot for as long as you're on your sea voyage. The same process is at work here in that the sugar causes all the water that's with this biology and on it to be isolated in a chemical bond. Anyway, so you cause it to go into cryo-freeze. So you take this snapshot of the diversity of nature up on the mountain in this highly diverse area, bring it down, put it into cryo-freeze, and then when you need a little bit to grow out on whatever you're going to grow it out on, we use a few different things. Usually what we have on the farm or whatever a farmer has available to them cheaply. Um, When you're ready to use it, you take a little piece out of cryo-freeze, add water to it, which is what causes it to wake back up, and um, you have as close to a real kind of snapshot of nature's diversity as, as we can get. Or, I mean, maybe we can improve that process, but it's it's a real practical way to take nature's diversity and get it down to your farm without having to drive up the mountain every day. Because that collection will keep for, you know, three or four years. So you're collecting leaf mold and dirt samples from these. Not, yeah, we not so much dirt, but yeah, it's it. It kind of looks like a spider web growing on a piece of wood or, or leaf. It's uh, it's real. Looks like a, a set of, you know, blood vessels or something that are somebody pulled out and turned white and put on something. I mean, it's really like a like a tree or a network of branches. Well, I think anybody who's gardened at all has come across that weed they pulled up and had these these uh, dangling white bits on the bottom and never really stopped to think about what that is. Right. And that's pretty much an example of what we're trying to recreate, but transfer that from the weeds to the plants, we the more desirable plants that we're trying to grow. Totally. Okay. Yeah. And those, that biology, why it's so important is it does just that at the root tips. So if you have a thriving you know, diverse biology, then whatever it is you're growing takes its excess sugars, you know, say it a lettuce or a shrub, you know, blueberry bush or tree, take some of that excess sugars from photosynthesis, which we learned about in, you know, high school biology. Well, it produces sugars, it takes some of the excess and says, here, fungus, microscopic biology down on my root tips, I have this cake, I'll trade you cake for boron or zinc or iron so it trades these excess sugars to these fungus that it creates a relationship Mm. at its root tips and the tree can't digest rock tree roots can kind of go through it but they can't really turn it in break it down and get out its minerals right but microscopic fungi can it can be digesting you know 100 feet away a big clump of lava rock and pull out some of those miners 
and at this minor minerals and at this root tip they'll exchange minor minerals for for sugars wow that's that's incredible and this is this is important to me because as a nutritionist, as someone who for over 20 years now has been working with people and uh, the with probiotics, something that the, the mainstream establishment did not acknowledge existed until Activia came on the market. And, you know, we were talking about uh, this stuff, you know, actually people before me, I mean, it was my first uh, foray into it 20 years ago, but uh, there were many doctors and many practitioners talking about it and nobody wanted to admit it but it it's it really goes to show that all forms of life not just human life depend on this type of probiotic and uh, transfer of good bacteria uh, to help assimilate things otherwise we wouldn't be able to assimilate or to integrate right it's just like a, a soil there's a network of all these interconnected you know like you were talking about one animal chases another animal chases another animal that happens on a microbial level where this one thing chases bacteria and something bigger chases it and, and we human beings have that same kind of interrelationship with our environment in our gut and all yeah it's it's pretty amazing it's pretty pretty mind-bogglingly complex right and, and that's what i think is interesting because now that we finally started to just we're just starting to Again, in the mainstream, starting to just look at some of the functions of probiotics. And it's, I, I found this when I first heard about Korean farming, it just made so much sense that the rest of biology follows a very similar path uh, to the exchange of minerals and nutrients and other nutrients. So when, how long have you been doing this method? Yeah, I guess maybe six years ago, I started just kind of attempting to, wrap my head around that. It was, um, you know, a lot of Korean translated into English, um, not always in a way I could understand. <laughs> exactly. And uh, the people that started this about the same time know exactly what I'm talking about. Initially, it was, it was a lot of trying to understand um, kind of cultural gaps and um, language gaps. Um, you know, the anecdotes would be all in context that we couldn't, it just, you didn't even understand what they were referring to. You know, the punchline would come and you're like, what? <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the things that happened to me or just kind of found how I, my mind approached it, it was really interesting and, um, and made a lot of sense. Um, seemed like, you know, wisdom, not a bunch of knowledge that somebody compiled and just put forward, but just kind of something that, yeah, it was a little bit deeper. But I wanted to know why. I had a lot of why questions. Um, kind of like, how does, if it works, then there's a why. You know, why does, you know, why do you put brown sugar with it? Well, not just because the master told you to, but, you know, and when I say master, that Master Cho is Korean um, man that kind of, formulated this from um, cultural practices in South Korea and also um, studying alongside some enzyme doctors in Japan and mm. some of these um, guys kind of digging into that we now know is kind of the cutting edge, some of the cutting edge research of the Japanese and how growing food. We have a lot of famous healthy food that comes out of Japan. You know, they value the, the quality of food. You know, a lot of that was stuff he was around through some really great doctors studying this stuff. And he formulated this 
method, Korean natural farming, based on some really great science. So as I continued to dig into the science of it, and, you know, over the years, kind of, we grew in what we were doing on our farm with it. I found over and over, I just encountered good science, good, good practices that lined up with how the world works. Right, right. So what were you doing before for farming? When I was young, we were doing um, eggplant and pineapple. As long as I've, you know, uh, I was born in Honoka'a and and grew up here in in Hawaii. And uh, my dad has been doing one form of farming or another uh, my whole life. Right. We were in cattle. I have, uh, I really feel privileged to be able to kind of be around um, working cattle when I was young and some really great uh, cattlemen, you know, I got to do fun stuff like that with. And And what was it under like an organic type of practice or just conventional? Um, So about 12 years ago, we we played around with having an organic farm here uh, with macadamia nuts. And, um, because we got a little bit of a grant to make a co-product with one of the macadamia nut processors. So they were going to make an organic chocolate-covered macadamia nut, or um, I think it was actually just an organic, yeah, I think an organic chocolate-covered macadamia nut is going to be sold kind of as a high-end product. Each candy was individually wrapped within the box, really pretty. Um mm-hmm. But there just wasn't much interest in organic 12 years ago. It wasn't like this huge push. Everybody wanted um, organic. It was beginning and it was interesting. But to do this massive process with all these nuts and this processor doing it, it just didn't work out financially. So um, we stopped. Um, We continued to manage 360 acres um, organically, but we let our um, certification lapse. And just so for the last 12 years, We've managed these acreage, uh, these acres organically and had next to it about 400 acres of conventional. Mm. And so growing up, I, I got to walk around with a lot of conventional guys and we encountered things like, you know, I, I remember walking with my dad in the forest, uh, in the orchard and, you know, really smart guy, extension agent and, and kind of expert in the industry is like, well, your pH is off. You need to apply about a thousand pounds of lime per acre. And, um, you know, we did that for 10 years, 10 years of following, you know, the expert advice. And after 10 years of doing it and having the same pH, I remember my dad just being like, I don't think this is working. You know, yeah, like exactly. this isn't, this isn't like something's not right here. And, uh, that was about that time or a little after that we had a massive crop failure. Mm. And, it was we, you know, lost the losing the house. My dad's house is leveraged, and oh, you know, yeah. against, borrow against next year's crop, you know, and and um, gonna move on to a little lease land in a trailer and sold all the equipment yeah. of the company, and all the uh, employees are laid off. It's pretty pretty devastating. Um, the processors crap. wouldn't take our nuts because they were so so much of them were bad, and that was that was um, kind of know a little bit why that happened now, but anyway, so. A little bit of crop insurance came through kind of towards the end, and we were able to limp along. Dad didn't have to sell his house, and um, we bought back a little bit of our equipment and farmed with the skeleton crew. And uh, But we only went after kind of the easiest and most productive acreage, which was mostly in the conventional. Oh, interesting. Because um, organic, we just, you know, it was it had been struggling. You know, organic nutrition um, was much more expensive, the inputs, and um, the trees 
weren't reacting super well to it. It was a really yellowed trees, kind of underproductive. Anyways, we were farming uh, for a couple of years that way, kind of sticking to highest yielding, easiest to do. And something started to change in some of the organic acreage. Um, these yellowed trees, as the grass grew tall and were neglected, turned green and lush and actually started producing a little bit more, so more nuts on the trees. And so that really was the beginning for us of kind of asking, okay, what's happening in nature? You know, how mm. does this work? You know, we, we apply all these inputs and get yellow trees and then we ignore it and let the grass grow tall and it's lush and beautiful. So it was your own little Chernobyl, basically. Yeah, <laughs> it comes right, our, comes right back Chernobyl. to square one. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, so that, that kind of sparked a, a whole bunch of questions and that began this journey. My big gripe with organic, obviously, you know, I, I want, I don't want my food to be sprayed with a bunch of stuff, but my big gripe with, with organic, the way it has come to be known is that, first of all, you've got on the one side, you've got people who've never grown anything in their lives and they, they insist on, on organic and really they're still getting the same thing just with an organic label and not necessarily what they think it is. Uh, what I find is that when a lot of producers are using this organic label, it is more, it's still, it's still approaching from the same place as the conventional in that you're still, like you were saying with the lime, you know, you're still using inputs that are not necessarily, first of all, they're not indigenous most of the time. Uh, they're not, you know, native to your area. And it just takes this still this very allopathic approach. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's very much like, oh, well, you're missing, you know, go get your soil test. Oh, you're missing this. Go add this, you know, go right. add the blood meal, go add, blah, blah, blah. but it doesn't really under, it doesn't seem to understand what the plant is saying, what the individual crop is saying it needs. And that's always been my problem with organic. And that, that comes from our history. That comes from, you can look back and see how we got there with organic. Because two generations ago, you know, you you got, you composted and you got the, the cattle manure and you applied and the earthworms came up. And when you, when you turned over to plant, you know, the, the birds came and, and ate because there was, so many earthworms, you know, and, yeah. and that was that was two generations ago, and and or, or so, and uh, in the fifties and sixties, and then we learned a little bit about chemistry, just a, enough to know that plants only need three things to grow: NPK, <laughs> and uh, and then we got the dust bowl, and yep. then and then plants need. Well, now we know that plants need twenty-three things or twenty-eight things to grow, and so we're going to sell you these too. Well, it's. Then we realized, well, some of these chemicals may not be so good for us, so we're going to go with organic. But it's still based on the same line. It's a, it's exactly. a, branch, it's a branch off the same kind of tree of this, well, plant, the, the soil is just chemistry, and we're just going to. But now um, all the cutting-edge research is in the field of biology. And we're starting to understand that there's an interconnectivity to our chem tests and, you know, what shows up in a chemistry test and actually what's happening on a biological level. And so what we need to do is jump back, skip out all this kind of misdirection of, 
you know, thinking that the soil works because we apply the chemicals that it needs or, or the even minerals that it needs back to maybe, well, what was happening before where they were getting these bumper crops with, um, you know, the inputs they had available. You know, as we take that journey, we're understanding that biology is involved. This this network of things they were, the things they were doing were actually fostering a network of supportive soil food web, it's, right. it's a, to quote Elaine Ingham, you know, it's a, it's a so, uh, who's works at Rodale or started, was working at Rodale Institute. It's a, it's a really cool kind of journey as, as I look at this kind of, so a, a lot of my generation have never been around people that farm using manures and compost because right. that, that's too far away. We didn't live at that time. Yeah. And so now we're having to rediscover, well, how does all this work? Mm -hmm. Right. So tell just to demonstrate, you, you know, you talked about the plants that you ignored and then they were like, F you, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to thrive now. Um, and but um, give people an idea of what are the differences since you, you integrated the system into what you do? Uh, what? differences have you seen in food production and weed control and pest control and then on the other side you know the harvesting times and obviously the the taste and quality of the final product i just threw a lot at you <laughs> yeah that's uh it's good you know uh the production numbers for us um are really kind of a uh, six months out um, last year would have been the first year that our 50 acres was in its second year or um, with natural farming. Um, kind of we expanded. We did a 16-tree trial and we did a five-acre trial. And there was a eight-month drought um, event that mm -hmm. caused most of our orchard to yellow. And these two trials stayed green. And so we're mm -hmm. like, you know what? At least there's drought resistance. So we'll, we'll go for it. We'll do 50 acres. And... Um, and then we moved to 120 acres. So we have a 120 acre natural farming trial that um, just gave birth to our whole um, our whole um, acreage turning organic. So, wow! Yeah, it's the production, the the tree health, the disease reduction is is all reasons why we've um, stopped all conventional practices. Actually, back in October, and uh, now this whole 720 acres is um, being done through uh, the use of natural farming inputs. Right. So how does how do things like, you know, because, again, we're talking about uh, a day when people are so, whether it's just irate or, or concerned, what have you, with, with things like Monsanto, GMOs, the heavy use of, of uh, various uh, pesticides that we recognize as cancer-causing and, and otherwise, right. you know, causing birth defects, et cetera. Uh, what, what about the pest control? Like, what, what is, is it just the fact that these plants are healthier, that they're resisting pests, that the pests aren't interested? They just go to the neighbor? Well, pests, pests are a problem. I mean, you gotta, you gotta deal with pests. The, uh, uh, Cho Yun's son, Master Cho's son, has developed some natural uh, pesticides that aren't really necessarily widely available, approved, you know, with the stamp of approval yet in the U.S., but um, some good, good approaches to dealing with pests, definitely, and then some really earth-shattering discoveries. Um, but before pests, you have um, 
bacterial and fungal diseases. You have mm. these these germs that mess with our crops. That I've found to be a hundred percent in our crop and in, in trees um, knocked out by diverse biology. That's and I, cool. And I've also found that in a lot of other crops. Um, but we have a, a root-borne fungal disease called Phytophthora, and mm-hmm. uh, it, the trees get defoliated, and within a few years, um, the the two kind of things we call it in macadamia nuts is macadamia nut quick decline, macadamia nut slow decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most real dynamic things that happened on our farm as we made this transition, this 120 acres, was we saw all the Phytophthora trees in the first year refoliate and be back in production by the second year and look like a really healthy full tree by year three. I mean, drastic um, difference. And that's not something we get in conventional ag. Conventional ag, I could throw a lot of miners at that. I could really fertilize it and I would get some regrowth, but not like the whole new branches, you know, kind of full. And it would, if I stopped doing that, it would decline and go um, go south again. Um, whereas this is like, it's obvious that this tree is no longer sick. You know, this tree is, uh, whatever was going on. I mean, we have some trees that were extremely drastic, couple yellow leaves. We kind of, in our industry, you know, you're going to push that tree in a year or two. You're going to knock it over and push it in the gulch because it's dead. Right. But, um, you know, these trees are in production. I mean, producing nuts. That's, that's a money saver. For sure. And it also makes me think about uh, a concern that we have particularly here on the island, which is the rapid ohia death. Do you think that natural farming could turn that situation around? Ohia, by the way, for those of you who are not here, is a a tree uh, that we have on on our island that is uh, in danger right now. Yeah, I I definitely think. um, I mean, I've been living this and looking at it under a microscope and kind of playing with all of this for the last six years, and I'm I'm no expert. Um, But in my field of study, which is tree diseases and how, you know, indigenous biology affects tree diseases, you know, which is something, again, I've been living, I think it's absolutely could affect it. Um, And I've seen... um, kind of anecdotal or single tree um, results already where people are spraying um, diverse biology onto, you know, ROD or rapid ohia death trees and they're, they're recovering. Wow. Um, it's, it's also inexpensive. Um, we apply 20 gallons an acre of a really rich um, biological uh, spray three times a year for including the cost to make it. Um, and spray it out $21 per acre. Wow. And how does that compare to what you were doing before? Uh, give us conventional and organic if you have those uh, n- you numbers know, off the top. I don't know all those numbers off the top of my head. Um, but it's not all straight up like you can't put it all next to each other because now we have to mow where on the conventional we had the option to make uh, herbicide strips for harvest season mm. where the grass was gone and you could get okay. in there really. So there's there's differences in costs. But, um, I mean, to say treat 100 acres of ohia, um, that would be, uh, let's see, $2,000. $2, yeah, 2100 yeah. 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 I mean, that's pretty doable. Right. Right. That's, that's for everything. That's for the the gas and the tractor to spray it that's um, and and the people you pay to to do exactly, it exactly yeah. the labor and everything so 
I think it could definitely deal with rapid ohia death. Um, you know, if you know somebody in Kamehameha schools, you should probably recommend that uh, they use me as a consultant to, uh, to create a trial because oh. they have the option. They have, they're a private landowner. The, our government cannot do this. Right. Our government cannot use diverse biology to treat a disease because they um, the current system for studying biology is isolation. Yeah. So they have to isolate each thing they're using. Mm. Well, if I'm getting a thousand item diversity in my spray, well, then they actually can't even approach that because the time it would take them to isolate everything they're doing or even isolate and make sure that they're not spraying any rapid ohia death, they'd be years in just doing that. So um, it's it's not that this is wrong. It's just that they don't, the science hasn't caught up to the diversity of nature yet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but um, there, there is some cutting edge research in all this. Um, Konguk University, which is um, kind of Korea's Yale or their most mm. prestigious university, um, they have an ag division. And in that ag division, I was there in um, last year and uh, they gave a presentation of one of their um, kind of doctoral uh, studies. I think, um, and they put side by side, they did a trial where they grew out Chinese cabbage and all these conventional um, containers using conventional inputs, all the same dirt um, using conventional inputs, and then next to it, organic inputs, the same dirt, not, not uh, and to, to speak to organic, not all organics the same. Some people are yes. doing cool composting and really great kind of practices that make some healthy food. But this is, this trial was using organic inputs, not necessarily biology, right. just, you know, OMRI approved uh, inputs uh, to grow things. And then right next to that, they did Korean natural farming. Right. And it was highly biological um, inputs in, in this um, process. And they grew it all out and they got their results. And um, the yields were very similar almost the same across the board. Right. They used uh, good agricultural kind of practices to grow all this. And um, the vitamins and minerals were very similar uh, across the board. Interesting. And then they got to these phytonutrients, which before this presentation, I didn't know what a phytonutrient was. <laughs> but uh, they got to these phytonutrients, which I guess are vital to our disease kind of defense, our, our immune system. Exactly. And all kinds of functions of our body that I, you know, I'm just now starting to dig into and understand. But um, all these bad fats in the conventional and the organic were high. Now, this is lettuce. This is, this is right. Chinese cabbage. This is in the plant itself. This isn't some process thing. All the bad fats were high and the good fats were low or non-existent. Right. In the, in the plant grown with biology, all the bad fats were super low and the, uh, mm. these, these good fatty acids, which, you know, again, these were new to me, were all high. And then a lot of these kind of markers of kind of not good food were present in across the board, conventional and this organic inputs were all the same. Right. And the, the stuff grown with biology, the Chinese cabbage grown with biology, had all this diverse phytonutrient kind of content that is like ideal for our consumption. Wow. You know, I, uh, all I can think of is some, there's some like entrepreneurial uh, supplement maker right now thinking like, I've got to get my hands on this. 
so right. I can create, I can, uh, you know, sell the world's first uh, Korean natural farming supplement. They'd be late to the game. There's a couple that are <laughs> that are working on, uh, you know, the, those things, I think. They have a um, hospital in Korea using that principle and dealing with cancer. Um, using the this huge swath of very nutritious food and having all kinds of success. I have a friend that went there with pancreatic cancer just a few months ago, came back and his doctors um, did tests and found his numbers to be um, drastically lower. Wow. Um, and uh, they said, well, that's not possible. We're going to rerun the test <laughs> because of what you did doesn't drop numbers. So they reran the test and they found the same result. And now they're looking at another maybe inconsistency in their testing trying to figure out how <laughs> this is possible. But meanwhile, he's doing better, you know, right. and, and using they, – they used food. They used a tiny bit of um, electric therapy. I think to activate some some things in certain areas. Yeah, I've heard um, of which that. I don't totally understand. But um, what if cancer is a vitamin deficiency, mm-hmm. a nutrient deficiency? Right. You know? Well, I mean, we we definitely know that there's there's ties to just weakened immunity overall, and our diet these days, particularly in the U.S., does not support the pathways of elimination. It doesn't support the pathways of assimilation. Uh, and, um, y- you know, w- what we're trying to do is we, we use this band-aid approach with our health and mm. we've used that same band-aid approach with our plants, with our food. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, and, and unfortunately, and that's, that's why I come down on organic sometimes. It's not that I don't want organic. It's just that the concept has become so oversimplified that well, the, people the are, label, are just, yeah. The label's lost a little meaning. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then there's, and then you've get, you get people like Scott's in the game who claim to have their organic soil or whatever that they're selling. And yeah, they, they have a totally different meaning when they say organic from what most people would think of when they, when they think organic. So, um, what I was going to ask was, uh, I did touch on this. What's your, your harvesting times? Are you, are you personally seeing anything? Things coming up faster? Things, uh, you know, the same, are they staying the same? Are you able to produce more? Because I've seen some people on some groups and this is where this is coming from. For example, one woman was, uh, uh, growing, um, turmeric, which kind of takes a while to right. grow. Uh, and she said she was harvesting every week with the use of some of the inputs used in Korean farming. Are are you finding something like that as well? Turmeric harvesting every week. I think she's just uh, harvesting some of what's right. in her row every week. Turmeric just takes a while. It's a it's a root crop. I, I don't think she's getting a new growth that she harvests every week. I think she's just digging deeper into her plant every and, week and just dis- and discovering that there was yeah. more down there. Okay, uh, but but. I, you know, there are trees. I mean, again, this is our first year. We're going to have production numbers. But we go into this um, orchard, this 120 acres where we've done this natural farming, and the trees are loaded. And some of the conventional acreages that are just being reclaimed now um, don't look anything close. So, I mean, this is observation. But, I mean, we live magnets. So it's not like we're making things up. But it, it's um those... Even we we approach this as complete skeptics, and um, my my dad and and I my brothers um, just started with us a year ago, so he didn't see the change. So he's he's still kind of like trying to 
decide if he's a believer in uh, this process, <laughs> but he don't. No, he. I, I take that back. He he really he really does think this works, and uh, he likes what he's seen. But we're getting better yields. But I think what's the most for this is tree. So my change is over three years, right? Right. Um, but I think with uh, with row crops, um, I definitely think you're going to see uh, a change. I haven't done a lot of things with row crops using natural farming. Okay. Um, one of the experiences I've had um, in town here, we had a huge, heavy amount of rain um, th- this last kind of November, September, October, November. Really. Yeah. And um, the ginger farmers in the air in my town in Kohala encountered uh, bacterial wilt, and it was wiping out their ginger. You know, and they're, you know, they've been doing this for years and uh, good farmers too, uh, you know, organic farmers, but they, um, it was wiping them out. And so I made a set of ingredients, put it together, um, indigenous biology, highly fungal indigenous biology. I aim everything a little more fungal because trees like a 30 to one fungal to bacterial ratio. And um, as my, my theory in, in that with, uh, the ginger is you know things have gotten wet they've gotten a little less aerobic yes and the bacteria is kind of going crazy and so let's let's nudge it back uh give it some diversity and and some uh, fungal content and so i gave them an instructions to make tea with this these liquid inputs and this um inoculum they made tea and their bacteria will stop dead and they had a full harvest wow um, other than the area that had been kind of trashed up to that point and then I did the same thing with another farmer, gave them all the inputs, and uh, they shined it, didn't didn't put it on. They lost the entire ginger harvest this year oh. in the same area and, you know, in the same uh, same town. So, was, But biology and understanding kind of its connection to our food, um, our plants, I mean, so that if that, you know, um, can be repeated, I've done that once, but it, it was real and and. You know, if that can be repeated, if you can knock out bacterial will with diverse biology, and um, as I understand it, you can also deal with nematode problems if you have diverse nematodes. As you can hear, we got cut off from Chris rather abruptly. But don't despair, we get him back and you'll get to hear the rest of the interview next week on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. (music) 